everyone, and welcome to our presentation today on pro bono representation of students in school discipline matters. My name is Marlee Spaniard. I'm the director of the EdLaw Project. We are a education advocacy organization um, housed in the Juvenile Public Defender's Office, and we provide um, education representation to, uh, to low-income students across the Commonwealth. And with me today is uh, Mary Ellen Suarda from Murphy Hesse Toomey and Lahane. Um, Mary Ellen represents school districts um, in special education and school discipline matters as well, generally when they're connected. Is that right, Mary Ellen? Yes, that's right. Okay, so we are here today together um, with the idea that we're going to talk about school discipline representation um, from both the advocacy, the parent advocacy and student advocacy side of things, and also um, hear the, the different um, kind of perspective of the school district and things that um, the school may be thinking of when it comes to school discipline matters so that we can kind of round out the, the conversation and experience and uh, give you a sense of, of what it might be like to represent students in school discipline matters. Um, our goal today is to lay out the school discipline law and uh, invite you, the participants, to participate in a pro bono panel run by the EdLaw Project, where you would take cases um, to provide representation to low-income children and youth facing school discipline um, situations. Uh, Mary Ellen and I have decided that we're going to be fairly conversational today, just kind of back and forth talking through the law um, and the different uh, angles to, to think through the both the the, how the statutes are applied as well as um, different advocacy strategies. Um, we are also going to, um, you know, there is a, a question and answer box that if you have a question, please feel free to type it in. And we are going to kind of, this presentation is in a few sections. So at each end of each section, we're gonna just check in to see if there are any questions and answer them um, kind of as we go along, but maybe not in uh, immediate real time. So just to give you a, a little bit of a backdrop of the, the problem that we're, we're talking about when it comes to school discipline, um, there are a good amount of students excluded from school in, uh, in Massachusetts. This was 2019, 2020, there were 28,000 students. And we're gonna use the term excluded kind of broadly. Excluded could mean suspended, it could mean um, expelled. There are times where we'll be very clear which one we're talking about because depending on the statute, it might um, might only pertain to one, but exclusion in general just kind of means that a student has been told that they are, are not able to return to school at the present time. Um, you know, there are some real concerns about uh, racial disparities when it comes to school discipline in Massachusetts. If you look at the statistics, uh, Massachusetts does have um, uh, three times as many black students that are disciplined as their white peers for generally the, the same behavior. And there's also uh, large disparities when it comes to students with disabilities, where 11% of students with disabilities are suspended compared to 4% of students without disabilities. The first thing that we kind of want to kind of lay out in terms of the, the legal landscape for school discipline is that education is not a fundamental right in Massachusetts, right? When we think with our lawyer hats on, when we look at and analyze things, you know, is something a fundamental right? 
In Massachusetts, education is not considered a fundamental right, which means that you can lose uh, the right to an education um, if there is a conduct that is detrimental. There's case law that supports this. Students do have a right to an education, so students are allowed to go to school in the districts that they live. And you know, there is an expectation that students are in school, but they can lose this right. And if they do lose this right, the legal standard in court is uh, arbitrary and capricious, meaning that if a student is excluded and the family wants to challenge that beyond the school district level, so right, there's the school district hearing, there's often an appeal, which we will talk about at the school district level. But if you wanna go beyond the school to appeal to court, um, then the standard is arbitrary and capricious, which is a pretty high standard. Um, therefore, kind of the, the takeaway advocacy point I would make here is that the more you can do on the school level, the better off you are. Um, the courts are have not been um, super uh, kind in, in these situations to, to students. They've been very, or I will say that a different way. They've been very, um, they've given school districts a, a, an awful lot of discretion when it comes to their, their school discipline decisions. Mary Ellen, anything you wanna add to that? Yeah, I just would add that, and I think we may be getting to this when we start talking about due process, but about eight or nine years ago, Massachusetts did kind of uh, reinforce um, the supports that students can get even as they are excluded from school. Um, we used to have provisions in the law that said if a student committed certain effects, certain offenses rather, they could be uh, expelled, as I kind of put it, into thin air. You know, they're, they're gone and they don't have access to instruction. Uh, around about 2014, chapter 222 of the acts of, was it, maybe it's 10 years ago now, 2012, I think, if I'm right, um, put into effect a requirement that students continue to have access to their instruction, uh, both gen ed students and special needs students, which we're going to get to more of that as we go. But just, re just changing the law, kind of a, a sea change in the law that students do not get expelled into thin air. They do stay connected with their schools. They are entitled to access their instruction. And over 10 days, they get instructional support with the expectation that if they do the work, they can graduate on time with their peers who are going to school. So although they're removed, um, they're, not ex they're, not, you know, they're not disconnected from the educational program. And that's certainly also very true with students with special needs in terms of accessing their special ed services. But just a little probably preview of what we're going to be discussing yeah, later. But. We will, uh, we'll go through in detail when and how students are entitled to uh, educational services if they are in fact excluded from school um, in a little bit. So that's a good preview. Thank you. Okay, so now kind of talking about what process exists for students facing um, exclusion. Um, there's kind of three little circles or three pockets where things come from. There's the state law, there's the federal um, and state case law, and then there are state regulations. Um, so as you know, in law, right, the, the federal standard is the floor. Um, states can give more protections, um, but they cannot give less than the federal standard. And the federal standard in the school discipline um, is a case called Gosvi-Lopez. Um, this is a case from 1975, and it comes out of Ohio. Um, and it's actually uh, involves a, a massive food fight in a school where um, there were about 45 students who were involved in a, in a food fight in the cafeteria. Um, but 
nine of them, I believe, were considered the ringleaders of this uh, food fight and were given a 10-day suspension um, without, uh, without a hearing. We're just basically called and told that um, they were going to be suspended. And this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court said that, you know, there is a, that students do have a property interest in their education, um, and that they ruled that students can be removed for 10 days or less, um, as long as they are given notice and an opportunity to be heard. Um, and that if they're going to be removed for more than 10 days, they didn't, you know, the, the, the ruling was more about the 10 days or less, but there was kind of some um, lip service given to the fact that if it was for more than 10 days, that then the written, there would be need to be written notice that would include things like the charges, the evidence, the date and time of hearing, right to representation in, in a hearing in person. But for 10 days or less, it's a notice and an opportunity to be heard, which is not a lot of due process. If you think about that from the perspective of 10 days is, is two weeks out of school. Um, so the the federal uh, due process is not is not huge. It's not you know the the place we go to say oh, but students have all these rights, um, but it is there and it does exist and it will come back around uh, in a, in a later discussion. Um, so that's going to bring us to our state statutes, um, and there are um, three main statutes that deal with school discipline, all under Mass General Law Chapter seventy one. There's Section thirty seven H. There's section 37H and a half. And uh, the most recent edition, we have section 37H and three quarters. Um, so they all very say kind of different things. So this is kind of the, the preview that 37H deals with um, anything that students can actually be expelled from. And when we say expelled, we mean that they do not, um, that the district can remove them from the district. And as Mary Ellen said, they still have a responsibility to provide educational services, but they do not have to allow that student to return to a, a school in the district. And that can be basically a, a permanent uh, decision. 37H and a half outlines uh, suspension and expulsion that have to do with felony complaints and convictions. And we'll, we'll go through that in a minute. And then 37H and three quarters covers everything else, basically. Anything that's not covered under 37H or H and a half is covered under H and three quarters. And I might just add that these are all the options available. H, H and a half and H and three quarters constitute all options, you know, one of, I sometimes say door number one, door number two, door number three to my client school districts. They wanna think carefully about the offense and which one of these to choose, but there's nothing else. And again, hearkening back to that uh, legislative action that took place back, I think around in 2012, when yep. 37H and three quarters was, uh, was issued, it, that is the catch-all so that just for, it's important to remember that there are, there are no other laws in Massachusetts that address student discipline. So um, it's, it's important from a district perspective to line up the offense with the right law. That's something to watch for if you're representing a family. It's also something to be mindful of if you're a school district. We spend a lot of our time <clears throat> advising districts on you know, which one of these three legal options to choose. They, as Marlies said, they all have, they have their own procedural um, nuances. Each one of them is a little bit different, but, but this is it. There's no other 
there's no other law to pick from um, when a discipline uh, disciplinary action is taken. And the district should be identifying which one of these laws they are using when they are taking disciplinary action against the student. In, That's right. In, in the notice provisions, which we'll get to. So the first one and, and um, the one that allows for permanent exclusion is 37H. And I, there are three things that can get you permanently excluded. I you know, sometimes refer to them as the, the three deadly sins, right? It's the possession of a weapon on school property or school-sponsored event, possession of drugs on school property or school-sponsored event, or assault on educational staff. So those are the three. Um, and again, you know, as Mary Ellen was saying, right, you've got, they've got to fit in the, in the statute. So um, it has to be one of those three things. Otherwise, it may be something you can discipline for, but it is not something you can expel a student for. Um, these are the only three things that a student can be expelled for. Um, drug is defined by um, the statute. Weapon, interestingly, is defined by the principal. Um, there is some case law that says basically um, that, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be a traditional weapon. It could be something else if the, the, the principal feels that it was basically used as a weapon. Um, from an advocacy perspective, that has been a challenge. We have seen um, uh, some situations. We had a, a young girl where a paperclip was considered, she was playing with a paperclip and um, she wasn't doing anything with it, but that was considered a weapon uh, by the principal who then moved to expel her, um, but needs to be a weapon. And then educational staff uh, is defines principal, assistant principal, teacher, teacher's aide, or other educational staff. Um, anything you wanted to add to those, Mary Ellen? Well, just as to your point, I mean, there's a lot of things in the classroom in a school that could be considered dangerous if it's used improperly. There's often scissors, there's sharpened pencils, there's paper clips, there's there's shoes, there's heavy, you know, shod foot kind of stuff. But absolutely, it's it's disheartening for me to hear that, you know, someone kind of fingering a paperclip would be accused of using a dangerous weapon. One of the things I always say in my in my representation of school districts is for, it kind of cuts both ways. Never abandon common sense. And another little trick I play, you know, so if it doesn't sound commonsensical to charge someone with a weapon, if they're just kind of holding it in their hand, uh, then you shouldn't. Um, the district should not. On the other hand, you know, uh, sharpening it or, you know, making it a point and poking, trying to poke somebody in the eye, get a totally different situation. Using scissors appropriately, not a problem. Running with scissors like you're going <laughs> to assault and stab somebody, you know, it changes the dynamic. Right. So, so common sense. And also think about what a hearing officer or a judge would do when faced with the facts that you're going to be presenting. And I, again, I'm speaking more to my clients as school districts. I know you folks are thinking about representing students, but again, that also works well. I think if you were the, if you were the person sitting in judgment, would you be persuaded that what was happening here with that object is dangerous or not? And, and then go with that because chances are, if you're persuaded legitimately, somebody else will be as well or conversely. So. And Mary Ellen, if you had been the attorney on the case with the paperclip, I don't think that would have been the case. And it did actually get overturned on appeal because it well, was not a, a situation where um, I think common sense or reasonable, you know, standard was was applied by the by the underlying school. I, I don't tell anyone, but I agree with the outcome. So. <laughs> 
So in terms of notice for 37H, um, it requires written notice. So if you are facing expulsion, you are, um, the school district is required to notify you in writing that you are, are facing expulsion um, and that you have a right to a hearing before the principal, um, that you have the right to bring an attorney, not one to be provided for you, but to bring an attorney. That is why we are doing this training and hoping that um, some of you may be interested in picking up some of these cases um, and includes the right to present evidence and witnesses and then it needs to be in the language of the home. The, the notice should also be uh, in the language of the home. So if the language of the home on record with the school district is not English, then the, the notice and the um, hearing should be conducted um, in that language as well. I do want to mention, um, so the, the hearing is before the principal um, and it should be recorded. Anything actually over 10 days, any exclusion over 10 days, um, whether it's 37H, H and a half or H and three quarters technically should be recorded. Um, but the other thing I wanna mention is that there is nowhere in any of the laws in Massachusetts, a zero tolerance um, law. So nowhere does it say, if this, then you must. Um, all, even 37H, which is the most serious, which you know talks about expulsion, allows for discretion, in fact, mandates discretion um, by the, the decision maker. So there's no zero, there's nothing that, uh, you know, there might be a school that, that uh, practices with zero tolerance where they may say, well, we have a zero tolerance policy in the school, but there's no state statute that mandates that expulsion is the answer to, to anything. It is always, um, up to the principal, which honestly, I think sometimes cuts both ways um, because, you know, it's great because there's no zero tolerance. Um, however, and we'll get to this when we talk more about advocacy strategy, this means the decision really is on the principal. Um, and so if they make a decision not to expel, they are going to be held responsible for that um, so it is something to consider in your advocacy strategy when you are arguing for, for a, a different outcome. I might just add here, I, I don't mean to jump the gun, but just in case it doesn't come up later in terms of advocacy strategy and it's on the principal. I spend time with principals, sometimes with superintendents in these hearings or appeals of the hearing and um, from an advocacy standpoint or just an observational standpoint, when students come in, you know, I think there's sometimes some tendency to say, this was a ripoff, this wasn't really rightly decided. You don't really, you know, there is due process, as Marlies has said, you know, from our Supreme Court case law. And, and, and that is a time to state your side of the, you know, present your side of the story. I'm not suggesting in any way that that gets stifled, but the demeanor of the student matters a lot. And if the student comes in kind of, um, you know, surly, argumentative, um, chip on your shoulder kind of thing, um, or, or, you know, kind of removed, lethargic, averting eye contact, head on the table kind of thing, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go as well. It's not going to go as well as the student who may have their own point of view and may disagree with the, out, the outcome the, or the, the possibility of the suspension. Um, but at least there's, there's respect shown. If there's a basis for being remorseful, show that remorse. An amazingly beautiful thing is to apologize for a mistake and recognize the value of their education and indicate that they want to do better and move on. I guarantee you that will result in a better outcome than the student who comes in ready to argue and fight and be 
resistant to the process. Um, I sit with principals and superintendents after the hearings and that's always, I bring it up. Um, and that's always a consideration in, in how these things go. So I'm not suggesting people, you know, start taking acting classes to be, you know, sort of you know, uh, fake tears or whatever, but, but showing sincere uh, regard and respect for the process and when they're recognizing, when the student is able to recognize their mistake, owning the mistake, granted there may be other repercussions, the student is going to court, they may have to be careful about what they say by way of an admission, but still showing that acknowledgement yeah. of the process, I think is, um, is important and, and helpful, you know, bottom line, helpful to your job of helping the students um, survive, you know, the process. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a little, um, okay. just that, um, you know, I, I think one, uh, there's a few things that are challenging, and we'll talk again about this a little in advocacy strategies. One is, is that they're children, right? So, you know, having kids behave appropriately in hearing sometimes can be a challenge, especially if they are feeling, um, you know, like there's all these adults in the room kind of looking at them and have expectations of them, that that can be a challenge, um, especially if the message has been, we don't want you. Um, wow. that, yeah, that never that, should that be said. Yeah, never. but it's Ever. felt right. I mean, if you're at an expulsion hearing, if you're at a suspension hearing, the kind of underlying premises we're considering whether we're going to kick you out of here. That's not a comfortable feeling for kids or students or families. And so um, I, what I would say where I, where I agree with Mary Ellen on this is that um, you wanna really prepare your, your client for what they're walking into, um, you know, to explain to them, first of all, um, the, the, the due process that is allowed, the standard, right? It's not court. You're not looking at beyond a reasonable doubt. You're looking at a preponderance of the evidence standard, right? So that's not a, it's not a huge, it's not a very, you know, high burden that the school has to show um, in order to say, you know, it just has to be more likely than not. So there is a, there, the schools often have the authority to do the discipline they may be proposing. Um, so we'll talk again, again, we'll talk, we're getting a little sidetracked, but we'll talk about this more in, in advocacy strategies about, um, you know, thinking through that and thinking through how do you, you know, prepare your um, client for the meeting, what they're walking into, and you know, if they feel that they have been unfairly treated, maybe they did do what they're accused of, but maybe they feel that that happened because, you know, uh, an adult was inappropriate with them or, you know, was kind of goading them into a power struggle or something, because that happens as well, right? Like, it, again, it's it's the looking at the the whole picture, the dynamics, where things are and, and um, seeing the best way to advocate. But I would agree with Mary Ellen that it is, rare it's a rare situation where i think coming into a hearing yelling you can't do this is going to be the most effective um form of advocacy right. it is or usually, you're all a bunch of idiots you don't know what you do you know that right. stuff is just don't do you know tell take a break if they if they're losing it take them out into the hallway and take them down a few notches um but yeah that but representing yourself defending your position i i totally get that marlise and I, I might also say, just in defense of my clients, I wish, you know, just like you probably, you know, I wish you were involved in some of the cases, yeah. I wish you were involved in all the cases I'm involved in, but um, I, what I see in the vast majority of these hearings 
are people, first of all, who tell me this is their least favorite part of their job. They hate doing this. They don't want to kick kids out. This is what's said behind the scenes when I'm getting ready to have the meeting with them. Um, but often they have kids like the, their kids of their own this age that they are empathetic. They really, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't do this kind of work. I, if I, didn't I, have, I have had hearings with those principles. Yeah. And so I and agree so that they exist. And I have had hearings with people that I think, why do you work with children? when? Well, you that's right. Like that's them? right. <laughs> right. Like, I have special things to say to those people, but we'll save that till further <laughs> in the training. <laughs> All right. So moving, moving along. Um, there is an appeal process. So if the student is excluded uh, under 37H, they have a right to an appeal. There are some hard um, timelines in these appeals that you have to request that within 10 calendar days of the notice to expel. Um, you can bring an attorney to the appeal hearing and appeals are de novo, meaning that you're not just bound to what was, was said in the, the first hearing. If there's other things or other information you want to bring up, um, please do. My experience as well is that if you miss the 10 day timeline, um, often reaching out to the school district, they will still hold an appeal. Sometimes they will say, no, the, the timeline is over. But I, I know, I believe, Mary Ellen, your advice generally is, you know, if it's within, you know, I'd give a grace period of at least a couple of weeks. You know, if it's six months from now, maybe not so much or, or that that kind of thing. But a few days over or they're trying to get counsel or an advocate. They need a little more time. By all means, we'll give them more time. We'd rather have them come prepared and represented than force them to the meeting or tell them that they've lost their chance at a, at a, at a, at a hearing. Um, if they say I'm not coming, you know, I think that the Department of Elementary and Secondary Ed says they've, they're deemed to have waived their hearing, but there's a difference between you know, I'm not coming to your hearing versus I want to come, but I just need a few more right. days or I miss the deadline or whatever. Honestly, one thing that we have seen that happens is sometimes when they get the notice that starts with you have been expelled. Um, we've had families that don't keep reading, right? Like that's mm -hmm. all the, the information that they need. And usually the appeal information is down at the bottom. So there's yeah. times where someone, a family will contact us and say they're unhappy. And they'll, when you say, well, did you appeal it? They'll say, well, I didn't know, you know, and then you know, when you get the letter, you're like, okay, well, it was, was there. And they're like, well, yeah, after, after I knew he was out, um, you know, I, I kind of stopped, but okay. So at that point, there's, there's still room for advocacy because even though they, they may have, you know, things may have stopped, they're still entitled to that instructional support. They're still entitled to their education. Even if they have an appeal, they have an ongoing right to their education that continues until they graduate or turn 22, if, yep. you know, if we're talking special ed. So, uh, all is not lost if they, even if they've missed the appeal period, they can still reconnect. And a lot of times if they reconnect and they start doing good things and working, you know, it, it's not an unusual principal who will say, I will revisit this, you know, after a certain amount of time. So, you know, yep. keep it a lot, keep, keep hope alive, keep processing things and keep trying to get them educated because you can, the loss is you can. Yep. Okay, so 37H and a half is the second of the 37Hs. Um, and this has to do with felony complaints and convictions. And basically it allows the principal to exclude a student if there's either a pending felony or a felony conviction. Um, and the principal makes the determination that the student's continued presence in school would have a detrimental effect on the general welfare of the school. So if there's a felony complaint, they can suspend the student for basically the length of the, of the court case. Um, and if there's a felony adjudication, a conviction, or the, the, or the student admits guilt in court, um, then that can trigger an expulsion. 
Um, in both cases, though, it would need to be in the felony complaint, it would need to be the felony complaint and the determination about the continued presence. And same thing is if there's a felony adjudication or admission of guilt um, and there's a continued presence. Um, any felony can trigger this. It doesn't have to be related to school. It could be in a separate town. It could happen during school vacation. Basically, if the school finds out about the felony and you know wants to move forward with this, they, they have the authority to do so. Um, there is some guidance from the Department of Ed that it should really only be used for serious violent felonies. Um, and you know that is something that we, we certainly argue because felony is a word, right? Most people think of, of pretty serious offenses, but you know we have seen um, my favorite and by favorite, I mean most ridiculous. Um, I had a student charged with ABDW, um, which is assault and battery dangerous weapon. And the dangerous weapon was a bag of Doritos, well, actually individual Doritos. He had taken Doritos out. He was having a power struggle with a teacher. He had walked out of the class. She had followed him. Um, and he took, he was eating Doritos and he took Doritos out and he threw them at her. Again, not appropriate. You know, I'm not suggesting that that was an appropriate response, but assault and battery, dangerous weapon. It was one of the most ridiculous. Uh, and that was a felony charge? It was a felony charge. And, oh. and the teacher in her report wrote that the Doritos struck her in the neck and chest area. <laughs> so it was a little high, high dramatics. You um, haven't heard of death by Doritos, Marlies? Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, just something to be aware of. Um, the principal yeah. is the decision maker in these cases, um, and they have broad discretion in these matters. Um, the, the case law, as I mentioned, right, the standard is arbitrary and capricious, and the case law on these felony complaints um, cases basically says that, you know, the principal is in the best position to understand the health and safety requirements of the school, and um, that if they make this determination, they don't have to to list out why they made the determination. It's good practice, but they don't have to. Um, they just basically have to make the determination. It can't be based solely on the felony. They can't just say, you have this felony charge, therefore we know you're a detriment. Um, they have to, there has to be some sort of kind of nexus to, to the school, but, um, but there is broad, broad discretion. If I could just interject on this too, on the 37H and a half provision, this is the only provision that allows school districts to take disciplinary action for events that happen off of school grounds. And we also have to think of like school sponsored events and field trips and things like that. If it's sponsored by the school and some misconduct occurs, then that's under the umbrella of the school. But otherwise, just a really quick example, not that long ago, I got a phone call from a school district that I represent and they said there was a house party kids were drinking alcohol, the police came, the kids scattered, we're gonna find those kids and we're gonna take disciplinary action. And I said, based on what? And they said, well, because they, they were thinking about kids who were on sports teams and MIA rules, that's you know Mass uh, Interscholactic Athletic Association, that's a separate conversation, separate time. But just as a general premise for the school to believe that they can or should take disciplinary action for misconduct that is off school grounds, not connected to a school sponsored event, the, the, res, the correct response to that is you can't do it. It is beyond the purview of the school. And, and, and yet there are still districts out there that I think struggle with their understanding of the limits of their authority. On the one hand, when I told them that, that they were relieved because they thought they were supposed to, but you know, we're not, school districts are not all things. We're not the police. Yeah. We're not, we are the school and we take, we use only 37 H and a half 
for disciplinary action, as Marlies said, when a student is charged with a felony or convicted of a felony. Thanks. Sure. The procedure for these um, exclusions is, the, is interesting because in the statute, only notice is contemplated that um, the principal basically just has to write a letter stating that a, a student has a felony charge and that they've made this determination. Um, and this is where I will fall back on Goss. I, you know, I said at the very beginning that Goss doesn't have a lot of teeth. It doesn't stand for very much in terms of um, a lot of due process. But it does say that you know anything more than 10 days requires a hearing. Um, so we always push back on districts that do this without an underlying principal hearing to ask for a principal level hearing. I will say most do allow a principal's hearing. And I know that Mary Ellen and, and her firm definitely um, recommend that to their districts that they do have a principal level hearing. I mean, it really, honestly, it protects everybody. It's one That's more, right. it's one more level. Um, uh, of due process where everything is on the record um, yeah. for every record where there wouldn't be a record without it. Right. Um, and it's just good practice. It's due process. And, and, and I, we always advise that districts do it, even though it's not required in the statute. And um, the appeal, right, we talked about the 10 day timeline for 37H. This one's even quicker, only five calendar days um, to appeal the decision. Um, and then that appeal hearing has to be held within three days and a decision rendered within in five days. But we never make people come on the weekends. You know, if this appeal request is made on a Thursday, you don't have to have the hearing on a Sunday. We could stretch <laughs> it out. Excellent. People do worry about it. Seriously, people yeah, do worry like, about it. I but, believe it. We can take the weekends off and still preserve our due process rights. Um, and then the last of the H's is 37H and three quarters. Um, and it covers all other school-based violations. So anything that's in the code of conduct or student handbooks. Um, and it sets a limit on the number of suspension days. Um, and we can't see you, so we're not gonna have you guess, but you know, just curious in, in your head what you think that limit should be. You know, if we're gonna limit suspension days. The limit is 90. Um, that's a lot of school days. Um, it's basically, right, half the school year, it could be. Um, but there are some limits on that. First of all, um, it's cumulative. So it's 90 in a, a school year. Um, and once that 90 has been used, you may not be excluded for the rest of the year for a 37H and three quarter offense. That shouldn't really say non-serious, it should say H and three quarter offense. Um, and they don't carry over. So playing that out, if in the first week of school, a student gets into a fight um, with another student um, and the school is looking to suspend them and chooses, you know, it's first week of school, but they really want to set an example of the student, let's say, and they choose to suspend that student for 90 days. Um, so 90 days goes by, the student will be entitled to services. We'll get to that in a minute, but let's say it's the 91st day and they wanna come back to school. They're welcome back to school and they get into another, you know, another fight with a student. Technically, they, if it's not a, a felony and it's, it doesn't involve a 37H, they're out of suspension days for that student. Um, so they can't suspend that student further. Um, I don't usually see 90 day suspensions. Yeah. Um, I think partially for that reason. Um, I, I, you know, I think the, the longest 37 H and three quarter suspension I usually see is 45 days. Um, right. And, and yeah. it doesn't carry over to the next year. So if you had an incident in June, um, 
you know, you could be suspended for the rest of that school year, but you may not be suspended into the next year. Sorry, Mary Ellen, I think I started to cut you off. No, no, that's okay. Another, I had a district a while back indicate that they knew the 90 days was used up during the school year, but they tried to have it continue during the summer because they had summer school, which was creative, but ultimately found to be not really an appropriate way to continue those 90 days. So um, I don't know if that, I don't know that that was formally challenged, but I do remember, I believe Desi gave some guidance that it should not continue into the summer, that it's a, it's part of the it's 180 part of the school year. year. Okay. And if you don't use them all up, you lose them. Um, so notice has to be provided to the student and parent guardian that includes the charges and reason for the suspension um, and both English and in the language spoken at home. And this um, was something that was uh, was outlined very clearly in the new statute that um, from our experience was not the practice before 2014 um, is that the, this, the hearing even for short term suspensions has to occur before the suspension. So Often what was happening for short-term suspensions, like, you know, two to five days is that, you know, call was made and said, hey, you know, student did X, he's suspended for the next three days and then he can come back to school um, and we could have a meeting when he comes back to school. Um, and that would be considered the, the suspension hearing. But no, it's very clear that the hearing has to occur before the suspension. There is a caveat to that, which we'll talk about in a minute about emergency suspensions. But generally speaking, you cannot suspend a student for a 37H and three quarters offense for um, without having a hearing first, unless it's an emergency, which we'll talk about. Um, in terms of your rights, uh, your due process rights, there are different rights, whether it's a 10 day or less suspension or a more than 10 day suspension. So for all of them, 10 days or less, um, you have the right to dispute the charges, explain the circumstances and present mitigating issue information. Um, and there's no right to appeal a short-term suspension, 10 days or less, um, under the state statute. And I and I want to say that very clear because a lot of schools have their own handbooks and provide more rights than are required in the state statute. So, for example, Boston Public Schools allows you to appeal a short-term suspension, even though statutorily you do not have a right to appeal a short-term suspension. Um, Always check the handbook. Handbook is Always definitely the, handbook. the way to the way to start, and then the law, and then <laughs> just as Marley says, there may be provisions in the handbook that are not in the law. And if it's more wittingly than ten days, oh sorry, sorry. I was just say if it's more than ten days, you have all of those rights in the in the short term suspension, but you also have an opportunity to review the record and evidence prior to the hearing, right to counsel, right to cross examine witnesses, and right um, to request that the hearing be recorded. Although technically anything more than 10 days, you do have a, a, a right to be reported, uh, recorded under case law. Um, so. Maybe just interject one quick thing here on the right to witnesses. Sometimes students will wanna have like a teacher who was in the cafeteria when the fight was happening, come in and participate in the hearing to which I say, fine, that's legitimate. What I, what I try to steer away from is having students come and speak at these hearings um, one thing, it could be intimidating, it can be a form of retaliation, it can be um, counterproductive, and it, as Marley said before, it's not a court of law. There really isn't, you know, you, the standards of, 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 you know, putting on your case are not the same as they would be if you were in court. What I do sometimes, what I've done recently is I've, I had this request and I said, 
if the, if the family wants to provide an offer of proof as to why, and they were represented by counsel, so I wasn't just talking legal jargon at them, you know, then we will take a look at why uh, they feel they need to have students participate. And when we did that, then they, they, they stopped. They didn't make the request. I just, I think it's really um, problematic to include other kids in the mix when a student is being suspended. That doesn't mean that they're not interviewed as a part of the investigation to determine if the student will be suspended. They should be, and they usually are. Students who are on the scene, who were witnesses, but to actually bring them in, I, I, I tend to find that is of concern just because it, it may put other students in a, in a compromising position, um, in a retaliatory situation, and it just, I, I find it to be so I'm going to push back. I think. Um, yeah, um, because you know most code of conduct, uh, you know, do, do and I think best practices. If there's a concern about retaliation, then the student doesn't need to be there, right? If um, or or identification, right? Sometimes maybe a student right. has come forward and and right. shared a concern about another student, and the student being accused doesn't know who that is, and that's right. You know, so there's some protective factors there. Um, but generally speaking, I feel like if a student would like to bring another student who was there and that student is willing to come um, and has said that they're willing to come, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to come. You know, we hear, um, you know, oh, we need parent permission, we need this, but that's not in the the statute. It's not in it's the, um, you know, and, and, and this is where uh, my bias is definitely going to come out. I mean, Schools interview kids all the time without their parents. And then you have these right. records that, you know, were sometimes maybe done by an individual who has an agenda that, um, you know, isn't favorable to your particular student. Um, and, you know, we have had students say, well, yeah, you know, I gave that report, but it was very clear. That's not actually how I said it. That's not, and I want the opportunity. And we've had students very willing to come to hearings be excluded, um, which is very frustrating. Mm. Um, but I think there are, if you're in that situation, I think there are ways to, you know, if I were in that situation with Mary Ellen, I would call Mary Ellen and say, have the student, is there a way we can find for them to participate? Um, I've had, I know attorneys who have, agreed with the principal to take the the student witness just the principal and the mm -hmm. two attorneys definitely the room and have a I, conversation I would be, that's good that's right good so, so getting getting creative about how yeah, to have that voice good. or have them write a letter yeah um, that the student can bring that, that that there are ways to do it but it is i like your um, i like your compromise solutions i would be on board with to, all those. To, to get them in yeah yeah okay so 37 agents recorders, Mary Ellen mentioned, was um, part of the, the new school discipline reform laws that happened in, in 2012 and went into effect in 2014. And one of the kind of big things that happened is that um, discretion was actually written into the law. Um, and that not only is it something that they have, but that they're required to get, the principals are required to consider ways to re-engage students. Um, and that students are not supposed to be long-term suspended until other non-exclusionary methods have been tried. So it shouldn't be the first time that this student has a behavioral challenge in school that they should be facing a long-term suspension. I mean, I'm sure there are times where there might be something that's happened that's more serious where that could be, but generally speaking, the idea is you're supposed to use non-exclusionary um, 
methods and you are not supposed to long-term suspend until you have tried something else. Um, so just a, a slide that has some lists of different non-exclusionary alternatives. Um, you know, some schools have restorative justice programs, some schools do mediation between students, you know, looking into the options um, to see if there are ways to um, keep the, the student um, in school because there's there's lots of research to show that exclusion is is not helpful and, and leads to not the most fantastic of, of education outcomes. That is to say, I'm not suggesting that there's not accountability, you know, when there is a situation there, you know, and, a, and maybe the student has done um, what it is they're accused of doing, but there, there may be more appropriate and frankly teachable ways to um, to engage that student in, in accountability than excluding them. So um, just a note on that, Mary Ellen. Yeah, just, just a couple of points on that. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of this provision of the law because I don't know if you all are listening, those of you who listen to this today as we're giving it, I think it's probably about, eight, at least where I am, it's about 82 degrees and sunny and like a beautifully perfect day outside. Who among us would not like to be suspended today? I, I would like to be suspended, but uh, I've been uh, I've been asked to be here, and I, I'm happy to be here. But seriously, you know, suspension out of school to me doesn't seem like that much of a punishment in in certain circumstances, and certainly with certain kids. And as Marlies said, I think there are statistics about recidivism is of, of misconduct is reduced when kids are kept in school. But then think about the ways that we can really impress upon the student. I don't want to say hit them where they live, but I will say it. Hit them where they live. Don't do this or you're not going to, go to get to go to the prom, which I've told Marlies, I joke when I do my own trainings and say, you know, there is that constitutionally protected right to go to the prom. And then people look at me like I'm saying the truth. It's, it's, you guys know it's not the truth, but people really believe that the prom is like one of the most important things they get to go to. If you say you do it again, you're going to not be able to go to the prom. It might sink in. There's also no real due process that goes along with that. I'm not suggesting we just, you know, cavalierly and capriciously exclude kids from the prom or any other activities that they love, but it does tend to have more of an effect. And then just finally, I was telling Marlise as we were preparing for this, just a short time ago, I was involved in a situation. I just gave very peripheral advice. The district had already done this. Just a very brief fact, student was engaged. There was a, there was a walkout uh, in a school and, uh, peaceful, nicely done, everybody's behaving, walking back in, a student engaged in some, I'll say, very offensive uh, bullying type behavior and offensive to certain types of students. The student was not suspended for that. There was clear evidence of what he engaged in, really inappropriate um, body language and statements made at a time when people were trying to be respectful of a situation. And instead of being suspended, he lost his privilege of being the captain of one of the sports teams uh, in the school where he attends. Um, I would uh, suspect that that punishment was far more effective, not only for that student, but for the community at large than a five-day suspension. So thinking about ways to really have students understand the importance of you know, appropriate behavior, decorum, respect for school, along the lines of these non-exclusionary alternatives uh, is worthwhile for schools to think about. And maybe for 
you know, if you're involved in a matter representing a student for you to encourage um, so that they don't miss school, but they really think about yeah, it. I mean, I, I think one of the things that Mary Ellen's getting at, which the research supports is that the more a school feels like a community, the less discipline you have, um, right. which is an interesting kind of thing to think about. I mean, there's definitely schools that I would call high offenders, right? Where suspension is the way that they do things and this, the, the kids don't feel connected to the community. If kids feel connected, and, and I would say also in school discipline advocacy, if kids feel like they were heard, um, that people understand their perspective, if there is a discipline that gets handed down, they're more likely to hear that than if they feel like nobody actually cared what right. they said or how they said it, you know, and and I do think that the schools that use exclusion like less often are schools that very often feel more like a community where then kids have less behavioral challenges. So it's, right. a, it's an interesting kind of cycle. So it's a very good point. Um, so the, the notice of the decision under 37H and three quarters needs to include um, kind of the, the fence, the, the date of return, um, the right to receive educational services, which we're going to talk about in a second, um, and the right to appeal if it's long term. Um, you do have a right to um, appeal if it's short term suspensions that have been um, cumulative. Um, so if you, you know, a two day suspension, you don't have a right to appeal, but if you've got seven two day suspensions, right, you're now at 14 days, you do have a right to appeal that because there should be a conversation about what, what's going on here. Um, but again, there's some timelines that are listed here um, for the, the appeal hearing and requests. Emergency removal. So I mentioned earlier that a suspension cannot occur prior to a hearing, but there is a, an exception under 37H and three quarters that says if there is an emergency um, that a, a student can be suspended up to two days two full school days without a hearing, prior to the hearing, um, but there has to be a concern about a disciplinary offense and either, um, no, and sorry, that the continued presence of the, the school poses a danger um, or substantially disrupts the school. And in the principal's judgment, there is no alternative available to alleviate the danger um, or disruption. And if they are doing this, they need to make sure that the student is safely um, able to get home um, and be transported home. Um, it's a pretty high standard on paper. My experience in practice is that um, many things are considered emergencies that I wouldn't consider an emergency. I do think that this is an overused um, statute, but um, there are times where I can understand why it was used and there are many times where I get frustrated because it's used and there's not much you can do about it because it happens so quickly. Um, but during the period of removal, um, the, the principal has to try and um, notify everyone what's going on, schedule a hearing to happen before the end of those two days um, and be clear about a, a decision. Um, on that. Anything you wanted to add to emergency removals, Mary Ellen? Well, I guess I just, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm sympathetic because I'm sure there are situations where, you know, somebody kind of looks the wrong way and they're out on an emergency removal. So I, I get that that happens. I have to say in my practice, when I hear about emergency removals or circumstances that may give rise to it, it's usually pretty, you know, somebody's been hurt um, or some, you know, expensive piece of equipment has been broken. Um, and, and 
frankly, I think it's a good kind of release valve in the law that does allow kids to, because what I always, you know, what I preach to my clients is we're not the prison wardens here. We're, we're, we actually do love and care about kids. And the value of the emergency removal for the, for the student is that this just, what's going on here can't be fun for them. This is a very dysregulated day. This, is a, this has to be a very upsetting day if people are getting hurt or close to getting hurt or things are getting smashed and destroyed. So there's value in removing the student, not because we wanna get rid of them, not because we don't care about them, but because we, that's our very purpose. We wanna support them, figure out what's going wrong, figure out a lot of times this is special ed, you know, infused and, and what, what's going on. Should we be reconvening their team? Should we be involving other support people? Should we be thinking about, you know, like an extended evaluation in another setting? And I apologize for going off into special ed talk, but you know, this is usually what I hear about. So I see it also from the flip side that granted we want to stick to these timelines, just like you said, Marlies, there are things we need to be doing right away when the student is removed. But I think there is also value in removing the student from the situation that could get worse, that could hurt the student himself or herself, that could really just result in creating an environment in that community, like you were saying, that's going to stay with, you know, this, we don't want this student to be known as the kid who, you know, trashed the classroom and sent three people to the hospital. If we can, if we have the ability to take them out and, and work with them and support them, I, you know, there is value to the application of this provision of the law as well for the student. And I want to recognize, right, nobody calls my office when school districts are thoughtfully carrying out the school discipline laws. So, I mean, I, my experience with this is very different than that, that child that you just described. My experience is, you know, kid told the teacher that he wasn't going to go to class and walked away and then was emergency removed for two days right like right um so um but that is why we're both here right so that we can right. share but also if they call me with those facts i'm going to say remember i'm like play the hearing officer play the judge how's yeah. that how's that going to work now who's going to testify successfully convincingly that by saying f you and walking away from the teacher that that caused uh a basis for an emergency removal because if i were the hearing officer I'm probably not going to be supportive of the decision, the school. But right, but from an advocacy perspective, there's not much you can do except what file it problem resolution system after it's happened. Right. right. Like there's, after not, it's happened. there's not a lot you can do to stop it in the moment, which is where I, I think the, the frustration. I, I hear you. I get it. You um, we do kind of live we we do the same kind of work, but we are in different worlds sometimes. Yes. So yeah. I the, the other thing to note um, under 37H and three quarters is that there is this explicit provision that says that um, we need to give different thought for lower elementary school kids. So students K to three should not be suspended um, until the uh, lesson, until the superintendent has been notified in writing um, and the with the explicit reasons why an out of school suspension is appropriate. Um, so. That is a, a little um, extra protection there. I'm just gonna check in to make sure we don't have any questions. Okay, I don't see any questions. Um, okay, so this is the, the, the part that Mary Ellen and I have both referenced in terms of education services for students who have been excluded. Um, and what the law says is that 
Um, if you are excluded for really any period of time, um, you're supposed to be given the opportunity to make academic progress during the period of exclusion, um, academic progress in the general curriculum. So you should be able to make up assignments and homeworks and quizzes and exams. So if you're out for five days and you miss a test, you shouldn't just get a zero, right? You should be able to, to work with the school to make that up. Um, however, once you hit 10 consecutive days, then actually the school district isn't just required to let you make up things. They actually have to proactively provide um, education services. And every school district is required to have an education service plan to address the needs of how they are going to provide these education services to students who have been excluded. What we see most often is uh, tutoring, um, online school, sometimes the school will have an alternative school placement. Um, and the way it works is that if you are excluded for more than 10 days in the letter letting you know that you are being excluded for more than 10 days, they are supposed to either mention, you know, hey, there's an education service plan and we're attaching it or, or provide the information, but they are, um, by the regulations supposed to require, supposed to provide two options to the student and then the student gets to choose the option. Um, so it, it could say you've been, you know, you're being suspended for 45 days under our district's education service plan. You know, we would like to offer you either, you know, five hours of tutoring a week or uh, log into our online um, learning portal, please let us know. Sometimes um, both. Sometimes both is a is, that could be a, like a I don't know if a third option, but it's a common option. Yeah. Sometimes there, you know, we have this online thing, and we will provide you a tutor. Um, and sometimes we only see one option, right? It will say this is your option, um, and then we push back to say no, no, no. You're they're supposed to um, be given to, but um, that is how that works. And as Mary Ellen said, um, it's supposed to be basically to keep you on track. So. Um, even if you're excluded, you should be able to, to meet all of the education requirements and, and have everything done. I personally think that there's a lawsuit in here waiting to happen at some point um, that, that I, I, maybe you see this more than I do, Mary Ellen, but um, I don't see a lot of students who have been excluded that are, you know, able, like getting what they need in order to hit all of their graduation requirements and then you know, moving on to graduation. Um, okay, I've got one right now, um, but uh, that's a, a challenge. I think often the education services that are provided are not um, to the level where they are able to make all the yeah. progress they need to make. I'm thinking about different cases that I've been involved in. You know, frankly, I've had some where people have said to me, the student is actually far more successful with the tutoring than they were in school because the distractions that got them in trouble aren't there. They're doing the work. And they've been I, able know, to do like the foreign language requirement. They, yeah, all. sometimes it's yeah. like what I'll hear, you know, it kind of breaks my heart. But then I think, well, at least they're still accessing school. Like such a smart kid doing, you know, has such potential, but gets into such trouble when they're in school. And of course, I'm always thinking special ed, you know, are we assessing that adequately? But we also know like if that student were to go off to a, like, a, a, you know, a special ed school, they might not have similar peers that really are, I'm thinking of a few cases like this, really academically, you know, superior in terms of their skills, but they get tutoring, they do the work. And sometimes, I'm not saying it's every time, but it's just a phenomenon that I'm aware of. Sometimes they actually do better academically because the distractions are not there and they work, they do their work and they pass it in and they, and they, and they graduate. Um, 
I wish they were all like that. They're not. There are some that, you know, we're like, hello, hello, are you there? Can we give you the tutor? You know, and they just, they just sort of drop out, which is tragic, but it happens. And then I'm um, on the other end sometimes yelling, hello, hello, can we get some services over here? <laughs> so. If it's my client, you call me, Marlene. Well, you know I will, Marilyn, you know yeah, I will. I mean, we don't want to lose these kids. Yeah. We don't want, you know, yeah. they, they, they're entitled to this, but, and then others, you know, it's sort of in the middle, there'll be some ebbing and flowing of their access to the work, but, um, I, you know, I am, I, I'm a, I'm a believer that these kids should be getting their education and I'm a stickler with my clients that you got to make it happen guys. And sometimes I'll even, you know, maybe tell them that the lawyer on the other side is even more fired up than he or she might be because uh, I want them to pay attention to this obligation. And, you know, let's not, let's not put ourselves in the way of a potential lawsuit. Like you're, like you're suggesting. Yeah. Um, so, so. All right, I'm just looking at, we've got about a half hour to get to manifestation advocacy strategies. I think we can do it. Um, so manifestation determination reviews. I just wanted to um, note, and this is a, a area where Mary Ellen and I will have to work hard not to sidetrack ourselves because this is, I think, where we do a bulk of our, <laughs> our work. Um, but just that there, when it comes to school discipline, students with disabilities have a, an additional layer of due process um, that we want to talk about, which is that if the student has a disability and is facing discipline of longer than 10 days, they're entitled to an additional uh, protection. And that is um, for students who um, are on IEPs have been found eligible for special education services and students on 504 plans. And that right is, is uh, a right to a manifestation determination review. And the basic idea there is, is there a causal relationship between the student's disability and the reason that they are, are facing discipline? Because we don't wanna punish students for disability related behavior, that's not fair. Um, so we want to have that conversation and see what the um, uh, the relationship between the two are. Um, and when we talk about a removal for more than 10 days, we're talking that obviously a long-term suspension is going to trigger that. An indefinite suspension under 37H and a half is going to trigger that. Um, expulsion is going to um, trigger that. An in-school suspension may trigger that depending on whether they are getting services or not. Um, and if it's lots of, I, I mentioned earlier, a kid who's getting suspended, right, seven times for two days, right, that's 14 days. If it's cumulative and all of those two-day removals are for a same pattern of behavior, right, so like, you know, kids walking down the hall gets told he needs to go to class, tells the teacher to F off and moves on and that, and he gets suspended for two days. And then a week later, we have the same thing happen. And a week later, we have the same, right, like, a behavior, a pattern of behavior, then they also have this right for this conversation to happen, this team meeting, this review to happen. Um, but it needs to be a pattern of behavior. So if it's, you know, a five-day suspension for, um, you know, uh, being disrespectful and then a, a nine-day suspension for um, theft, right? Those are are not likely related, um, aren't a pattern, so that would not trigger a manifestation determination. Um, but the idea is basically that once you hit 10 days uh, or more than 10 days, it's a change of placement that you're removing the, the special education or the student with a disability from the services they're supposed to get for more than 10 days. That's a change of placement and not allowed without this additional layer of um, protection um, the team, the special education team has to get together within 10 days so that we're not going over 10 days, right, um, to, um, to have the conversation 
and we'll show you the questions in a minute. But I know Mary Ellen, you wanted to say something about this timing. Um, well, the first thing I was just going to say, I would probably phrase it before the eleventh day. Like we can have the ten days. Yeah. Eleventh day, we have to convene the team. Um, what was I going to? I'm trying to remember my least. Was it the recent BSEA decision? No, I think you were going to say that. You know, like sometimes the uh, the 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 kid is suspended for 10 days and the manifestation determination isn't until day eight and people get upset because they're like hey but if it's a manifestation oh, yeah. of their yeah. disability but it doesn't matter because even if it is a manifestation right if you're not suspending somebody more than 10 days you're allowed i mean the district is right. allowed to suspend that student yeah i get thank you for reminding me i get questions from my clients sometimes saying well what if we have this the manifestation determination team meeting at day six or seven or, you know, before day, before day 11. And the only thing that concern, I mean, people can do certainly what they want to do. And if it's advisable to have a team meeting, then definitely have the team meeting. But what we don't want to do is create this sort of false impression that from the get-go from day one or two or three or four or five or six, you know, up to day 10, that the student um, cannot be suspended because of their disability. It just isn't the case. The student can be suspended and the misconduct can be caused by the disability. And the law simply says, you get to do that for up to 10 days. Sometimes though I encounter advocates and attorneys who will say, well, yeah, but it's caused by their disability. And my response is, I hear you, but that's, this is the law. We're allowed to, to do it. And, and so if we start doing it earlier, I think it just can create that false impression that there is a, that it shouldn't happen at all. There should be no suspensions, even when the misconduct is caused by the disability. And, and that's just simply not the law. So. I, I have seen some school districts do something that, um, that I'm like, that's not a thing, which is preemptive manifestations. Um, so yeah. I have seen school districts say, well, this kid has been suspended six days. So let's do a preemptive manifestation before he hits 10 days. And I'm like, well, no, we don't have that's a behavior not... that we're considering. It's not a, yeah. it's not a thing. No, nope. um, no, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to jump the gun. Um, so I think sticking, this is a time when sticking to the timelines uh, makes the best sense. Yeah. So the, the, the review that happens, the extra layer of protection is called the manifestation determination review. And there are two questions that the team has to ask, which is, is the conduct in question caused by or directly and substantially related to the disability? And then is the conduct in question the direct result of the district's failure to implement the IEP? Those are the questions. Mary Ellen and I were talking in preparation that sometimes we see questions that are not the questions that a, a team will like to ask, like, does the student know right from wrong um, is, is a popular one. It doesn't matter. We just right. re refer back to these are the questions that need to be answered. Another um, one, hearkening back to years ago, does the student have it, their own special rules of behavior yeah. to like you know, a hundred years ago, there was that sort of notion in our state regs, which thank God that went away because we would put, we'd have to put into their IEP, their own special discipline rules. Right. And that was a recipe for disaster. So that would also be a thing that is not a thing. Don't be I saying, well, they have their own special rules because. Yeah. So if yes to either question, Sorry. so yes, it's directly and substantially related to the disability or yes, we're here because the district failed to implement the IEP, then the school cannot proceed with disciplinary action. Instead, what that, I think of it as not, again, we're not, oh no, we can't do anything for this behavior. I think of it, no, we need to respond in the special education realm of things, right? So the reason those questions exist is to say, basically, 
is this is there a causal relationship here and do we need to remedy that in special education law um, and there are you know ways to do that one uh, very popular way is to do a functional behavioral assessment you know to really look at what was what is the behavior what's the target behavior we would like not to see again um, right nobody wants to just say oh it's a manifestation let's move on we want to make sure that you right. know that behavior is addressed so we're not seeing it um but you know if it's related to the disability we want to see that done through the the special education law not through the discipline law um but if no it's not related um and it's or it's and and the district was implementing the iep that wasn't an issue then they can discipline that student in the same way they could discipline them as if they didn't have a disability um one note though is if there's not a team consensus just in general in special education law, the school gets to make the determination and then the parent has dispute resolution options. Um, but if it is not found to be a manifestation, the school can discipline the student, but you still need to provide educational, special educational services to students um, with IEPs. You do not need to provide the 504 services to students on 504s. You do need to have the manifestation determinate their they're given that right of protection, but if they are suspended, they are not given any additional rights beyond what all of the general ed students would have in the in the statewide, I mean, sorry, the school-wide education service plan. So can I just recap that? Because yeah. that's a good, it's, it's an important point. What 504 doesn't provide, what special ed does provide. So if a student's on an IEP and they're going to be suspended for up to 10 days, we know from what we've talked about already that they get access to their, for the first, I think we've talked about this for the first 10 days before they're before they reach that 11th day of suspension they get access to their work so that they can try to keep up with their classmates they don't have an entitlement to a free appropriate public education at that point but they do starting at day 11. so from a day, even if the team finds that the misconduct is not caused by the disability starting at day 11 12 13 however many more days they're going to be suspended the fape you know fape free appropriate public education requirement kicks in and then they get access to their special education uh, instruction and support can become a little creative how that happens they can get it remotely they can get it if it's going to be a long-term suspension a lot of times kids will go to collaborative programs um, and access a program if they're going to be out for a while um, i'm leery about of telling school districts you can provide fape and instructional support and access to the curriculum all during suspension at home. I think that's a tall, depending upon their IEP, maybe that's possible, but that's a tall order for a student, you know, who's got a grid with a lot of special ed services on it. So there are different ways to ensure that the student receives FAPE, but when you go over the 10 days, that's when the FAPE obligation, free appropriate public education, special ed obligation kicks in. All right, so now we're going to turn to discipline advocacy, kind of the ideas of how to prepare for a hearing, what to do at the hearing, and kind of after the hearing. Can I just add one more thing, Marlies? Yeah, just to what we just talked about. Um, when we're at the juncture too, when we're look, we're having a team meeting, doing a manifestation determination review, and maybe not in agreement. Marlies said absolutely correctly that there's dispute resolution available to the parents, but there's also a wonderful opportunity. I do it a lot with families, attorneys, where we just decide how we're gonna navigate these waters. You know, sometimes the misconduct is dead on caused by the disability. We can, uh, well, is it <laughs> when that's true, they stay. So let me say when they, when they have a right to stay, sometimes it's not the right thing because yeah. we don't wanna throw them into harm's way. 
we don't want to put them, you know, in a position where, where history is going to repeat itself, they're going to get into the same trouble. We can agree that they will right. go to a different setting, you know, and that's not going home to tutoring. That's going to a different setting where they will get therapeutic support and help. Um, and that's not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. And my clients, for the most part, want to do that. They want to give the student that support in another setting. I was really discouraged in a team meeting the other day, a parent brought that up and said, well, you know, I'll use a fictitious name. Johnny went there, but it was really punishment for Johnny. And I was like, let's not do that to the student. This is helping. This is a therapeutic environment to give the student strategies and supports to help them so that they can come back to the gen ed setting. This was where we had agreed to an extended evaluation. Yeah. And the parent was like, he's been punished long enough. And the lawyer sitting there, yeah, it feels like punishment. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, what if it was medical treatment? Would you call that punishment? I don't think so. I sure as heck hope not. That's there are times, Mary Ellen, where where when it's not a manifestation, and I know I'm walking into a situation where they may be likely to be disciplined, then I'll reach out and say, "Can we agree, you know, for an extended eval, or you know, you depending on on the school and and where they are with this particular child?" Sometimes it's a great strategy, even if you know you wouldn't win a manifestation, right? But you know, so so yeah, it's definitely. Having the conversations about what might be possible through special education, you know, it just does give you additional options to consider, um, both in due process and also in ways to potentially resolve any conflict. Right. Um, I th it's yeah. an opportunity. Just like yeah. don't yeah. you have that opportunity to reach out, like you said, Marlies, discuss other options, regardless of what the team may conclude one way or the other about whether yeah. the misconduct is caused by disability. Thank you. Yeah. Just wanted to say that. So in terms of, of advocacy, we've, we've mentioned this before, but really start with the handbook. Um, you know, uh, most of them are available online now. Usually you can go to the school district or the actual school's website and find them, um, but they, they should be available um, and you can reference them for, for things that, um, you know, their own due process policies. I mentioned that sometimes they offer more. Um, sometimes it will say like for, a student on student fight first infraction is this you know like only a 10 day suspension or something um and there might be uh kind of they they may in their own student handbook have uh their own kind of tiered discipline system that is different um, than what the the statute allows so that can be very helpful um Definitely recommend that you get the records before hearing, um, get the clients to sign a release. You know, we use HIPAA forms. We're happy to, to share our uh, copy of our release, but, you know, getting the uh, documents you want, your expectation for a timeline. Um, and if you're doing an appeal hearing, you want to, you know, get a copy of any recording of the underlying hearing, um, if that exists as well. Let the school district know you are an attorney. Be upfront about being an attorney. Um, this may mean school brings counsel, as I mentioned in the beginning. Um, primarily, where Mary Ellen and I would run into each other in a discipline situation is if it's a special education student. Um, very often, schools do not bring their uh, representation in if it is a straight discipline situation and doesn't involve a, a special education component. Um, but, you know, you want to be clear that you're an attorney and they may or may not tell you that, you know, you need to be uh, communicating with counsel. Um, the other things to note is that, you know, school discipline hearings, 
um, are probably the most formal things that many of the school personnel experience in terms of the due process that happens in a school building. Um, but if you, you know, depending on what type of law you practice, it may be the least formal thing that you experience, right? Like, you know, a, a school discipline hearing is usually in either the, the, the conference room near the principal's office or in the principal's office or in, um, you know, the guidance office. They're not um, you know, the most formal venues. So think about your demeanor. You know, we talked a little bit about this earlier in terms of um, coming in and you know, yelling and screaming about what the, the school district has done wrong, um, you know, in your power suit, right? Like um, is probably not the, the most effective. Um, I have had situations where, you know, I've had attorneys that go in and say, you have no right to do this. And the school district will say, oh, okay, you know, um, and, and that has been effective. But my general experience is that it's not the, the most effective. Um, I find the most effective is to put yourself in the position of whoever the decision maker is. And then thinking about whatever they are going to be thinking about. Is this a safety issue? Is this, a, you know, uh, was this a, a drug situation that they're concerned about what's going on in the community? Are they concerned about other people's opinion? Was this really a public thing in the school community, right? Like sometimes it may be that no one at school knows what happened. It was a very private thing that happened maybe between two people or it involved, you know, a felony outside of school and it's not a big thing in the community. Then you're looking at just a conversation about, you know, your particular student and maybe, um, you know, giving a, a broader thought on that. But if you have a situation that was really public, um, if you have a situation where the, the principal, you know, is getting pressure from somebody, whether it's other parents, whether it's from teachers, you need to think about that because you're not going to be um, that effective in your advocacy if you haven't thought about that and thought about ways to, um, to think about that, right? So, if I know the school is really concerned about what other people think, um, then, you know, depending on the situation, I might say something to the effect of, you know, if you are, if we can develop a plan where, you know, we are all comfortable with it. So sometimes it's, you know, bringing community members in and saying, okay, this is what's going to be different going forward and why we don't have to worry about this student. Um, and if you're wondering what, other people may think what they may think is that you are someone that is going to think about the individual and you have now this um, you know, plan to say that I have thought about this and if someone pushes back on you, you can tell them you know, how you thought through this and how it was a, a group decision, right? But really kind of thinking about that. Um, and I also find it's, it can be very disarming in a good way if I, let the principal understand that I understand where they're coming from on or or not, you know, sometimes I may not understand where they're coming from in terms of moving forward with discipline, but I can certainly understand what they're considering. Um, and, you know, just validating that sometimes can can make it a more productive conversation. But again, you want to be mindful of that and then focus back on on your client. You obviously want to zealously advocate for your client. Um, but, you know, I find it, it to be very effective. And that was a long-winded answer, but Mary Ellen, any thoughts on that? No, I think just to tease out one thing, I, those are all good points, but I do think in terms of the assessment of the severity of the issue and the impact on the principal and other decision makers who have to suspend or think about it, 
if, it, as you say, if, it, if it's a safety issue that's just affecting the student, him or herself, it's going to be perceived differently than a safety issue that could affect the whole school. Here's, and then drug problems. One thing I'll say is it's a, it's a world of difference in the minds of principals, the student who has a drug issue and is taking drugs versus the student who is selling drugs. If you have a client who's selling drugs, it's going to be next to impossible for the principal to, um, you know, scale down their thoughts about suspension because it's a safety issue for the school. You put that in a vocational school, your problem is tenfold. You know, kids who are using heavy equipment and knives and, you know, saws and things like that. So these are the things that I see. You know, if, if the student has the issue themselves, it's going to be regarded in one way if it's, if it's affecting the whole community. I think your, your point about reaching out is excellent ahead of time, diffusing the situation. But those are just the realities of, you know, what the decision maker is going to be faced with in terms of what they're going to have to do. Um, so then in terms of the notice, you want to um, uh, ensure proper notice and refer to the code of conduct and you make sure everything's in the right language. Um, I've written here, note all deficiencies for potential appeal hearing because notice doesn't usually win the day in a principal level here. <laughs> um, it may on an appeal, right? Like there may be concerns about the notice on an appeal, but it's rare that I've gone into a situation where I've said, well, the notice is the issue here. And somebody has said, oh, okay, then we're gonna stop this hearing and, and you know, not move forward. But it, depending on the, on the issue and the deficiency, it could be something um, for, for an appeal hearing. Um, and then, you know, making sense of the situation, um, you know, look at what's going on to make sure that the, you know, as Mary Ellen said, you've got door number one, door number two, and door number three, it needs to fall within one of those doors. Um, have they referenced the right statute? We sometimes see, you know, somebody referencing a 37H and then saying, and we've determined their detrimental, you know, their presence yeah. will have a detrimental. Yeah. It's like, that's 37H and a half, right? Yeah. Um, you know, making sure that it's the right thing. Um, and then making sure that if the student is being charged with a felony, that it's actually a, a felony, right? These are our school districts. They're not necessarily expected to be great criminal lawyers to know every section of the, the state statutes. In terms of the actual arguments, um, you know, there are four main areas to argue, kind of procedural, substance, reason, and, and data. Um, procedure, we've talked about a little bit, right? Like know the code of conduct, what sort of protections does it offer in addition to what might be in the statute? Um, and, you know, look through that. Substance is really, you know, did the incident happen? Did it happen as described by the school? Um, you know, was your client able to tell their story? Um, keeping in mind Miranda issues, because, right, sometimes that's frustrating is that school wants to hear from the student, school, you know, wants an apology sometimes. Um, but if there's a pending court case or the potential for a pending court case, that student is absolutely going to be advised by their defense attorney to keep their mouth closed about anything um, that happened at that uh, uh, surrounding the surrounding the incident. So that's something to think about. And um, we'll talk about that a little further in a minute. Um, and then and then reason, right? This is where Mary Ellen said, right? Common sense should win the day. Um, you know, one thing to be aware of is that in especially in your bigger schools, sometimes the decision maker, the principal, has never met the student before, knows nothing about them, and is walking into a hearing where they, you know, have been given. Uh, some sort of information from, you know, other people in the school district about what the student has done. 
Um, and so it's a real opportunity to share a broader perspective of who that student may be, um, you know, and who they are maybe outside of school, who they are maybe to other people in the school. Um, so, you know, bringing in collaterals can be super helpful. Um, I've had some, you know, very interesting hearings where we've had a number of people come in support of the student. And that really does change the perspective of the decision yep. maker to say, oh, wow, you know, this kid is involved in this after school thing, or, you know, has this kid's, um, pastor has come to speak on their behalf right whatever it may be that can that can be helpful and then having personal statements um, from parents students and collaterals um, and if they aren't able to speak to the facts let's say there is a, a pending felony or there are potential for charges um having them still speak at the hearing can be helpful right these are schools right like taking the law out of this right schools and kids and teachers and adults right like and students they they are trying to sometimes you know th there is a sense of community there sometimes different sense of community but generally speaking they want accountability they want a student to be able to talk about what happened they want to be able to have conversation um you know it's frustrating when they want to have that and they have also filed charges right because i'm like well you can't kind of have it both, both ways if you want them to have an open conversation there can't be pending charges on the same thing but sometimes that's beyond the their particular control but anyway even in those situations having the students speak can you talk about you know what it would be like if you were expelled how would that feel what does school mean to you what are the things that you like about this school what are the things um you know that um going forward if you were to return not speaking to facts what would be what would that be like um you know showing different level of commitment right as i mentioned in the in the beginning right there there is a a, a power dynamic here i mean schools do have a lot of authority when it comes to to school discipline um and making sure that your you know your student understands yeah, that they likely, you know, in, in depending on the situation, that they could be excluded. So, what what would they like to have the school here know about them um, as well? What have they learned from this? How are they going to make sure it doesn't happen again? That rings a bell, I think, with administrators, because um, I really do think their goal is not to keep kids out. They, you know, kids need everybody needs a shot at redemption at some point in their life right and i'm gonna i'm gonna say that i would like to think that is true <laughs> i i see it i mean i don't always I, see it yeah but i do yeah. see it it really exists out there i um, i agree it does i have also i'm like you hate this child and you want nothing more like you would like to get rid of them as fast as possible i have been in both sets of hearings yeah yeah um well, I probably wouldn't want them in that school district period <laughs> if right. that were the mindset of the administrator. But so, well, speaking of right, so so the last thing I will will say in terms of uh, of that is is there sometimes data can be effective, um, right? As we mentioned, there are some some kind of stark disparities that happen in school discipline, um, and and making and kind of bringing that to light, right? There's a fine line between saying you're being racist. That's not necessarily what you're saying, but you can say hey, let's look at the history of the this, this school and exclusion. And by the way, did you realize that, you know, you actually suspend a disproportionate amount of, of students of color? You know, can we talk about that? Um, you know, is there a reason that that 
could be, you know, happening or something. So sometimes bringing that up can be effective, but again, you have to do that very carefully because, you know, if you're coming in to say, hey, there's a, a racial issue here that doesn't, doesn't generally um, make people say, oh, oh, you're right. right. There right. is, that was the basis of this decision. Um, right. But it is something that is important to continue to, to bring up and shine the light on, especially if that is the case in that particular school district. Um, so, um, Who's ready for a case? Um, I see in the question, um, Julia asked, can law students get involved? Can we represent students? Um, that may be a challenge, but happy to talk more about it. The issue there is gonna be supervision um, because you would need to be rule 303 um, certified technically, unless it's I think a, a law school clinic, but um, happy to um, have some further conversation to see. There are law school, I happen to, seems like my my work from time to time gets um we get students from boston college they and have the a juvenile rights advocacy program it's not yeah. a, it's not a specific school discipline representation program but they will represent they're they're in the mix they're doing uh, yeah. cases yeah. discipline cases so I, that's a great idea bring them in um so the thing to to notice discipline moves quickly so those of you um uh, who are interested, please do um, reach out. My contact information will be, or the deadline project contact information will be at the next slide. Um, but if we, you know, get a, a number of people that are interested, then what we'll do is if we have a case, we will send it out. If interested, respond, then you would run a conflict check um, and then connect with the family and provide the, the representation. Um, so, um, you know, the, the challenge we have found, because we, we do run a successful pro bono panel in the special education realm with some of the bigger law firms, um, but the conflict check on school discipline, that's where it gets challenging. So, you know, if you are a solo practitioner and are able to run conflict checks quickly, because school discipline does move fast. Very often, you know, we get calls for a hearing that's happening tomorrow, and usually we can postpone them a couple of days, but you don't want to postpone them too much because often the, the student um, is yeah. out as well. Um, so all of this information will be emailed to you, um, but please do reach out. I'd be happy to have some, some additional conversation about um, law students. Again, I think we'd have to figure out some logistical challenges there, but I'm certainly open to to additional conversation and i am going to stop sharing um and see if there are any additional questions if anyone has any questions feel free to throw them in the q and a um, um but if not we're going to start and saying thank you both so much for a great presentation definitely enjoy listening at my end as well. I'm so our audience did. And additionally, as Molly had already alluded to, you will receive a follow-up email with more information as well as the slides for today's program. And with that being said, I'm going to wish everyone a great afternoon. Thank you so much for attending. Have a good one. Thank you, everyone. Much.